This podcast is brought to you by Erickson Immigration Group. Welcome to Immigration Nerds. Today, I am joined by University of Pennsylvania Professor of Law, Sarah Paletti. Sarah is the founding director of the Transnational Legal Clinic, and her research focuses on the intersection of human rights, migration, labor law, and the access to justice. Sarah, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. And today, co-hosting with me, I have on Erickson Immigration Group's legal writer, Con Branch. Very glad to be here. Thanks, Ian. And thanks so much, Professor, for joining us today. Sarah, let's start with your academic background. How did you first get interested in migration and labor law? What sort of sparked that interest? So I don't know if I have a, I can pinpoint sort of where that interest started necessarily, at least in terms of human rights work. So I will say that coming out of my undergraduate college experience, I sort of wanted to do human rights work. I didn't really know what that meant. Um, but that's that's sort of where I wanted to be. And so I, I was able to get a job at what was then the Lawyers Committee for Human Rights and now Human Rights First out of their DC office. A major part of their operations out of the DC office was the Asylum Pro Bono Project. And so that's where I got introduced to some of the immigration and asylum issues as well as, as broader human rights advocacy. And then in law school, uh, I took a human rights clinic and in that clinic, I was doing policy work uh, as well as direct representation of individuals in asylum proceedings and realized how much I liked clients and I needed clients. And so coming out of law school, I knew I needed to do work that involved individuals and direct contact with individuals and, and quickly gave up my degree in international, my master's degree in international development and instead went into direct legal services and I really lucked into an opportunity um, with a fellowship to work with an organization. Again, then all the organizations I've worked for have changed names. Then it was called Friends of Farm Workers here in Philadelphia, providing statewide legal services to migrant workers across the state of Pennsylvania. Um, now uh, it's called Justice at Work. But Friends of Farm Workers really was an opportunity for me as I saw it to engage with non-citizen population, right? Engage with clients from other countries, but around issues that were really problematic right here in our own country, in our backyard. And so to me, it was the perfect blend of my international human rights interest with my direct client services interest and, and a tension I felt in terms of thinking about doing human rights work overseas, recognizing the human rights problems here in our country. So all that to say a very long roundabout way of getting back to academia was that after, after several years in farm worker legal services and, and thinking about sort of where I wanted to go next, an opportunity came open for me in the human rights clinic where I had uh, at American University, Washington College of Law, where I'd been a student to work with former clinic colleagues. Um, and clinical legal education is really the blend of theory and practice, right? We talk about it's where theory meets practice. And so we're working with students, training them in being effective, competent lawyers, client-centered lawyers through the direct representation of individuals in proceedings or through human rights advocacy projects. And so we have sort of one foot in practice, one foot in academia, uh, and trying to bridge those two worlds. 
Great. You talk about theory and practice and bridging those two worlds. I know that you had some involvement with the CDM petition. If I'm getting correct, Maritza Perez and Adarelle Ponce, they they filed the first ever petition against the U.S. under the USMCA, which was a pivotal moment for the fight to end gender discrimination against migrant working women on temporary labor migration programs. So tell us a little bit about that story and how you were involved. Sure, so um, Adarelli and Maritza are both um, just incredible human rights defenders of their own right. They are members of the Women's Committee of CDM, which is Centro de los Derechos del Migrante, um, or the Center for Migrant Worker Rights, which is a binational migrant worker rights organization which was founded with its offices in Mexico. It now has offices in the United States as well. So it has offices in Mexico and the United States trying to provide representation and ensure the voices of migrant workers are part of policy decisions um, in the US. Senora Ponce and Senora Perez are two women who are reflective of women uh, across Mexico and across across the globe, honestly, who are applying for temporary labor migration employment in the United States, who find themselves routinely segregated into lower paying jobs, higher risk, lower paying jobs. And so the two of them both were trying to get jobs under the H-2A visa program, which is for temporary work in agriculture, has a certain number of protections, certainly a, a flawed program in in many ways, but nonetheless, it has a greater degree of protections than the H-2B program, which is for temporary labor migration, unskilled temporary labor migration um, outside of agriculture. And so despite trying to get employment, being eligible for qualifying for employment in farm work, they were regularly and routinely denied access to those jobs and, and pushed into lower paying jobs. Uh, Ms. Perez did get a job in the H-2A program, but within that got pushed into um, lower paying work within that position. And so the, the degree of discrimination, um, gender-based discrimination that both women faced clearly problematic on many degrees, um, is reflective of problems in the system altogether, um, but really does, they really are trying to challenge gender discrimination in temporary labor migration programs um, and for workers across the industries within which they're working. Um, I got involved because I am a board member of CDM um, and have long supported the work of CDM. And when they filed this complaint, they wanted to really sort of raise up the complaint and flag what the human rights issues were in terms of gender discrimination, because this is a transnational complaint, right? This is under the USMCA, um, which is the, the new NAFTA. Um, and so it was trying to raise up some of the international human rights law and the implications of international law um, in the ways in which these programs operate. Um, I was interested both because of my sort of affinity for the work of CDM and my support for the work of CDM, because I've, I've met both of these women and they are, they are, like I said, incredible, brave human rights defenders in their own right and deserve to have 
support in this in their in their work but also because i think it's important to flag at the international level and at the transnational level and within levels of government in the united states the problems in these temporary labor migration programs because they are really being promoted as ways to address migration management and i think it's important to flag what are the fundamental rights at issue and make sure that those fundamental rights are protected um, one of the things that we were looking into was the way that the United States has kind of reshaped the uh, temporary labor migrant programs, or if there's been any um, reshaping in them. So one of the things we looked into was the international compact for migration that was discussed in 2018. Of course, the United States was not a part of those conversations because the president at that time did not permit the United States to participate that um, international uh, intergovernmental conference that took place in Marrakesh. And so since the change in the administrations, Professor, have you noticed in, any steps that have been taken by the Biden administration to not necessarily become members of the Global Compact uh, for Migration, but at least to begin to align with some of the ideals or um, the policies that were expressed in the Global Compact? to make the temporary labor migrant programs in the United States a bit more um, respectful and mindful of current trends needed for protecting migrant rights? That is a good question, a big question. I think we are waiting to see um, that there is going to be the first International Migration Review Forum this spring. Uh, and we'll see the degree of participation from the United States in that, right? And I'll note that President Obama was involved in the negotiations around the initial global compact, right? And then the subsequent negotiations around the specific global compact for refugees and migrants, and then the separate global compact for safe, orderly, and regular migration um, the US did not participate in, and that's problematic. Um, one is the Global Compact for Refugees, and one is the Global Compact for, you know, one is, is specific to safe, orderly, and regular migration, right? I think this administration has shown it is happy to treat those as two separate documents, and I think that's something that needs to be reassessed and reevaluated. Uh, it sets up a false dichotomy between this notion that there are forced migrants and there are voluntary migrants, right? This false notion that there are people who migrate exclusively for work and people who migrate exclusively because of a humanitarian crisis, when often the humanitarian crisis is the reason why they need to migrate for work, right? Um, they all are intertwined um, motivators for migration. Unfortunately, what you see through these international systems, honestly, and, and perpetuated, I think, advocates are, are pushing back against is this notion that migrants are to be managed and the safe orderly migration. And I think that the Biden administration has lined up behind safe orderly migration or what it views as, as sort of safe and orderly migration management. Although I would question safe for whom, because certainly the Haitians being sent back on planes to Haiti are not safe. All of the migrants who have been subjected to MPP and have been stuck in, in Mexico while the Biden administration sort of fights it in court are not safe. 
and all of the migrants who are pushed back at the border because of Title 42 and the Title 42 pushbacks are not safe. And so there is this question of what is safe and orderly migration. But unfortunately, what we're seeing is a, a real push by this administration to adopt temporary labor migration programs as a release valve, um, I think it sees, right? A release valve to the migration pressures that are coming out of the Northern Triangle and even Haiti. Um, and so it is opening up and expanding temporary labor migration programs without really tackling the fundamental problems with the programs. So we are seeing tweaks within the Department of Labor as to how it's processing some of these cases. And, and they're looking at the application forms for the H2 programs, right? And making the, the tweaks that they need they can make. But they're tweaks. At the end of the day, migrants who come on these programs don't have labor mobility. Their right to be in this country is tied directly to their employer. If their employer abuses them, as happened to, to both of the petitioners that we talked about earlier in the CDM complaint, and they complain and their employer fires them for complaining, they get deported, right? They lose their status in this country and they risk deportation. And they have often spent exorbitant fees because even though the recruitment fees are supposed to be paid by the employer, we know that they're not. We know that those fees are more often than not passed on to the, to the workers. Um, and so then they've got to decide, do I go back with the debt that's still owed, right, to the situation that I was in that caused me to apply for this job in the first place, or do I just live through this? and try to live through this until it becomes unbearable or until my employer stops paying me or isn't paying me enough to pay the fees that I need to pay. And those are fundamental structural issues with the program that are not being addressed, I think, with the seriousness they need to be addressed before we talk about expanding the program. We talk about mistreatment in work, um, but also there's been mistreatment in detention centers, right? And you worked on a lot of UN like human rights uh, when there were reports of medical neglect and mistreatment of women in custody of different US departments. How does that change your approach to combating these reports? And uh, is that the same approach as what you do with temporary labor migration? Or is it different when it comes to detentions? I think it's largely the same. I think our our targets are different and and maybe less receptive. <laughs> um, and and so the challenges are different, right? I think with the temporary labor migration programs and raising these issues at the international level, there is a notion of international cooperation. There is also, there, there's a strategy where we really have to make sure that the International Organization on Migration, which has been a big proponent of temporary labor migration programs, recognizes that unless you have labor migration programs that allow for labor mobility, that allow for family reunification and family unity, you are going to have inherently exploitative programs. So that's a, that's a slightly different target. I think in terms of of detention, 
this is one of those situations where theory and practice, there is a big chasm <laughs> between theory and practice, right? Or between law and reality. International law and international human rights legal standards are very clear across the board that detention in the context of civil immigration should be used as a matter of last resort only. And it should almost never be used for kids. And it can only be used for kids on a very short-term basis where it is necessary for the protection of the safety and well-being of the child. That is it. And that is not what we see in the United States. And unfortunately, if you look at other countries, immigrant detention is an issue right across the board globally. So the United States is not an outlier in that. Although I will say the numbers in the United States um, and the use of for-profit corporations in the United States to detain immigrants is something that I think is more problematic. The lack of access to counsel, the whole host of issues that come up in the context of immigrant detention. In terms of the, the complaints out of the Irwin Detention Center specifically, we had been raising, and I'll, I'll just, we had been raising issues at Irwin and its counterpart, Stewart, also in Georgia, for years with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. And individuals at Stewart have been dying. And each year, there's a new individual at Stewart who has died while in immigrant custody, immigration custody held at Stewart. And the complaint that got all the attention out of Irwin was primarily about medical neglect and mistreatment, and particularly was brought about because of real fears about COVID and the lack of any possible social distancing, sanitation, any of the things that all of us were being told to do to keep us safe from COVID simply are not feasible in the context of detention. Um, and those precautions were not being taken seriously. And the women at Irwin were rightly afraid and bravely, again, sort of stood up and said, this isn't possible. We can't have this. Um, and it was page 17 or something of the complaint that got filed with the Office of the Inspector General, where the issue of non-consensual gynecological procedures was raised and the accompanying and the resulting sterilizations that were happening. Um, that's what got the attention. That's what got the international community to respond. That's what got the major media to respond. That's what got everybody to respond. And, and I don't mean to diminish the horrors that came with that, right? Um, but I think it's important to take that all in context of complaints have been being raised about mistreatment at these facilities for years and falling on deaf ears. And so DHS and ICE right? ICE cannot say that this is a surprise. ICE cannot say that they did not know this was going on. And yet they try to sort of blame specific individuals within the facility, right? Congress cannot say that they did not know this was going on. Repeated letters had been sent to congressional representatives about what was going on, right? So everybody tries to say, well, this happens in, in these rural facilities, run by these private corporations who then contract out the medical care to another contract, right? It's the same thing you see in any employment situation, right? We see this in the guest worker programs where the employer hires a recruiter who hires a this person who hires a that person and then tries to say, I'm not responsible, right? Um, and, the, and the government is doing the same thing with these detention centers. Um, 
the international community has spoken up, right? We filed a complaint with the a communication with various UN special procedures, um, including the UN Rapporteur on the Rights of Migrants. And they issued a communication to the US. The US did actually respond and they issued a very strong worded communication back, public communication indicating that they were very concerned about the rights violations taking place. The UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Migrants doesn't have any binding jurisdiction over the United States, right? It can't sue or get reparations or force the return of the individual women who were deported in the course of retaliatory actions taken for speaking up. But it is important to continue to raise this and to acknowledge that what the United States is doing behind the walls of detention is a clear and gross violation of the United States' obligations under international law. And as the US goes up for its review under the Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination, we'll be again raising these issues because the people who end up behind bars in immigrant detention are predominantly black and brown immigrants. And that can't be ignored. Um, and so that's something the US is gonna have to answer for as it goes before the UN Committee on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So along that same line, and especially because you referenced two things before, the Obama administration changes that have happened in the way of being involved with the conversation on um, temporary labor migrant programs and the start of the Marrakesh conference. Um, it was the Obama administration, of course, that had a review of private pro federal prisons and privately managed detention centers. So would you mind speaking to the nuances and problems raised by that in immigrant detention centers, but also because you spoke to the obstacles in ensuring that um, immigrant detainees have access to, for example, counsel, would you mind speaking to the difficulties in a private prison structure for non-citizens um, and having their complaints addressed to the appropriate places that they need to be for alleviance of grievances? Yeah, I think it really is a question of accountability and mm -hmm. where does the accountability lie and who takes responsibility for that accountability. I sat in a meeting with the former head of ICE, Tom Homan, and he basically said, the government can't afford to detain individual immigrants. We couldn't afford to do it in our own facilities. We have to contract it out. That said a lot to me. That said a lot to me, one, about how they value the lives of the individuals who are behind bars, that they are putting behind bars in their custody. Um, it also says a lot to me about what that's conceding about what happens in private facilities, that it is cheaper to pay a for-profit corporation to detain individuals and for the government to do it. Now, the rights of the immigrants don't change depending on who is detaining them, right? Everybody has a right not to be abused. Everybody has a right to basic fundamental human rights in terms of how they're treated, how they're fed, respect for their religion in terms of the food that's provided to them, respect for their health in terms of the medical care they get provided, and again, the food they're provided, treatment of individuals who get placed in solitary confinement, all of that. And what you see is 
Um, with the private facilities, one, they are often located in rural communities, far removed from um, any meaningful access to representation. But the response we often get when we have the hearings at the international level, right, is a response from the Office of Civil Rights, Civil Liberties in the Department of Homeland Security that says file a complaint. Well, that's great. And we can file a complaint. But again, the remedies that the individual gets, the amount of time it takes for those remedies to come through, and that is putting the burden on the individual immigrant as opposed to the burden on the government to ensure that there is accountability. And again, none of these complaints should come as surprises. They are entirely consistent um, and they have been going on for decades. Uh, and so there really needs to be a greater degree of oversight if the government is going to insist on contracting this work out to private corporations. Um, one, they really need to assess why they're using a for-profit corporation to do this, right? What is the, and the profit motive behind the institutions that are housing and detaining individuals. Um, but they need to figure out a better system of accountability and oversight. They have the responsibility. They are the ones who have made the choice to put these individuals into custody, right? They are the one, it is their custody, right? They're in ICE's custody. Um, and they, ICE needs to take responsibility. DHS needs to take responsibility for what happens. Um, and the way that the burden is placed on the individual makes that highly problematic um, for the individuals who are really just trying to survive and figure out how to fight their immigration cases. You have such a long history and, and career being a change maker in terms of human rights and, and migration. For people who are aspiring to walk in similar paths, whether that is on the academic side or in immigration law, what advice would you give? So I have, I appreciate the compliment. I would I would say that it's my clients who are the change makers, and I am just doing the best I can to support them. Um, in the changes that they seek to see happen. But I would say to, to folks who are interested, get involved, right? Find a way to get involved and learn more. I think one of the problems that we have in the immigration arena is that there is so much talk, there's so much noise, and there's so little listening to the actual individuals who are subjected to these systems of immigration. And so we really need to find a way to raise up the voices of the individuals who are subjected to these systems of immigration enforcement and to the temporary labor migration programs and all the rest, right? So find a way to do that, right? Um, I have come back to human rights policy after years of direct client services. And I, I, I always come back to that, right? My days as a farm worker attorney and the clients I represented when I was a farm worker attorney still very much are with me in everything I do when I talk about labor migration and human rights. Um, and yet I also recognize that that information, right? Those clients have moved on uh, and it's important to keep talking to the individuals. So it really is important when we're thinking about moving into policy arenas. I think that the the impetus is always, I want to do policy work. I want to do class action litigation. I want to effectuate big change. The first thing I would say is big change doesn't happen overnight. Um, and it takes time. 
right? And it took five years for us just to get a hearing at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights on abuses in detention centers in Georgia, right? And, and Irwin is closed, but Stewart is still open and now women are at Stewart. So this, these battles are ongoing, they don't end. And individuals are still affected and we can't forget the individuals and we need to make sure that we are in contact with the individuals and communicating with the individuals and listening to the individuals and taking their experiences and their stories into account while we are working on the, the big change, right? Um, so I guess that's my, my answer really is, is find ways to engage with individuals who are impacted in these systems um, and raise up their voices. Thank you. Uh, Sarah, thank you so much for the work that you do. Uh, you are a shining light for us in immigration and for underserved communities, communities in need. So we appreciate all the work that you do. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for, for giving these issues some time on air. Follow Immigration Nerds on Twitter at IMMNerds and Erickson Immigration Group on LinkedIn to join in the conversation. I'm Ian Gaines. See you next week.